Well, let me add my welcome. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Pete's. And wherever you are and whenever you're joining us, uh, we're really glad that you're joining us for this worship service. Before we dig into God's word, let's pray together. Father, we are very grateful uh, for technology. We're grateful to be able to worship through this medium as imperfect as it is. We're grateful that we're united in a deeper way, that we're united by your story, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jane the Virgin is about a virgin named Jane. Now, I've never seen an episode, so I can't tell you if it's worth its salt, but here's the premise. Uh, Jane is a virgin and she becomes pregnant. And of no surprise, her boyfriend takes issue with Jane's pregnancy, but it turns out, however, however uh, by an accident of her doctor, she was artificially inseminated. And we hear about that and we think, yeah, okay, that makes sense. As unlikely as that scenario would be, a virgin birth is way more incredulous. You know, to most ears, it just sounds like a far-flung excuse. So miracles, miracles in general, they can be a stumbling block for people, even for Christians. You know, over the past century, some theologians have just become embarrassed by the presence of miracles in the scriptures and examples like the virgin birth. Uh, Rudolf Boltman, you know, he sought to demythologize the scriptures, remove all the embarrassing metaphysics that are clearly impossibilities, all the things outside of the realm that can actually take place here on earth. Indeed, for some, perhaps even for you, when you pick up the book of Luke and you come across details like angels visiting priests in temples, an elderly woman who's been barren her life becoming pregnant, or a virgin miraculously becoming pregnant, it gives you a sense that this genre is probably more like fiction than fact, fantasy rather than reality. And sure, maybe we can derive some meaning from these stories, you think, but they're not describing life as you know it or life as you experience it or life as we know within the laws of physics and nature. And so in our series, in the Gospel of Luke, we're now in our third sermon about Mary, and it seems about time that we slow down and talk about the virgin birth. And to do that, I want to consider three things with you. First, whether or not we accept Mary's virgin birth, we all accept a virgin birth. Second, I want to look at how Mary made sense of becoming pregnant. Because as shocking as it is for us and as difficult as it is for us to comprehend, I imagine it was much more shocking for Mary. And finally, I want to think about how we can sing with Mary. So, virgin births, how Mary made sense of it, and how we can sing with Mary. Before we jump into the passage that was just re read, I want to go back in the Gospel of Luke a little bit uh, to verses uh, 30 and 35. We read, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The author Rob Bell asks a few provocative questions about this passage. And when he originally asked them, it stirred up quite a bit of controversy. In his book, Velvet Elvis, here's what he writes. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in? Or what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah? And then you find out that in Hebrew language at the time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse. And then Bell asks the question within the question. Could you still be a Christian or would everything fall apart? If the virgin birth didn't happen at all or if what actually happened has been reconceptualized, you know, would it really change what it means to follow Jesus? But I think this provocation misses the point a little bit. You know, to be clear, Bell doesn't deny the virgin birth. He's very clear in Velvet Elvis that he believes in it. But the challenge for us is not whether the virgin birth happened as much as we might want to focus on that detail. Nor is it really a question about whether it was a miraculous conception or Mary becoming pregnant the first time she had intercourse, the narrative makes it very clear that this is miraculous conception. The challenge is that this is part of the story. It's there. We can't avoid it. It's embedded in the gospel. It's been passed down through history. It's in our creeds. We say he was born of the virgin Mary and became man. If the virgin birth was just a bit of exaggeration or myth, but not true, then we would have good reason to ask, well, where does it stop? What other parts of the scripture are suspect? You know, if Larry showed up and proved to be Jesus's dad, how can we be sure that Christ's body isn't still in a tomb somewhere? The virgin birth is a strange, uncomfortable abnormal detail. But here's something to consider. Whether or not you accept the virgin birth of Mary, you likely already accept a virgin birth. You already believe in a virgin birth. Vince Vitale makes this point so succinctly. Yes, the most well-known virgin birth is Mary's. But this is just one example. Peter Singer, for example, is a philosopher and atheist, and he was asked, you know, why are we here? And here's what Singer said. We can assume that somehow in the primeval soup, we got collections of molecules that became self-replicating. And I don't think we need any miraculous or mysterious explanation. 
but self-replicating molecules somehow emerging out of primeval soup leaves a lot of room for mystery. You know, without further clarification, this actually sounds similar to a virgin birth. The late Stephen Hawking's was asked a similar question, and here's what he said. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. But physical matter doesn't normally appear out of nothing, so this is also outside of the ordinary. Is this less miraculous than the birth of Christ? And after offering these perspectives and a few others, Vince Vitale puts it so succinctly. The fact is, we live in a miraculous world. Regardless of a person's worldview, the extraordinariness of the universe is evident to theists, atheists, and agnostics alike. It is therefore not a matter of whether we believe in a virgin birth, but which virgin birth we choose to accept. So we don't need to deny the virgin birth. We don't need to demythologize the virgin birth. We don't even need to defend the virgin birth. Instead, we need to decide which virgin births we'll believe in. And this is the crux of the matter. If you can accept that the entire universe was born out of nothingness, it's no more incredulous to believe the same thing is possible in a womb. But let's move on to our next point. How did Mary make sense of this? The Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know, always irritates me a little bit. And here's why. There's a really easy answer to every question. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Yes. Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Yes. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Yes, but I'll shut down my inner Scrooge for a moment. Mary tells us explicitly in the Magnificat or Mary's song what her take was on everything that was going on in her life. And before we look at her song, I think it's very, very important to acknowledge that this is not some theological treatise, although it's dense and rich theologically. It's a poem. It's artistry. And this is important because it says something about how Mary makes sense of everything. You make sense of it through worship and not solely through reason. We understand with reason expressing itself in adoration and worship. And the truth of the gospel, it's not just understood intellectually, but it's known through the heart and the imagination, the wellspring of all art. You know, for Mary... She doesn't just speak. She has to write a poem. She has to articulate the gospel with some beauty and expression. We could say she doesn't speak. She sings. And as we look at the Magnificat, I don't want to lose sight of this because it has implications for how we engage the gospel. The gospel can only truly be understood when adoration and reason come together to praise its beauty. And sometimes, if you're struggling to believe or understand the gospel, it's because you're stopping at reason alone. And reason is important, but Mary shows her, us, if we want to make sense of this, we don't just use our reason 
our hearts must come alive and the artistic part of our soul must express itself in praise if we want to understand. So here's what Mary sings. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There are three things three things that we should take note about Mary's song. First, Mary knows the intimacy of God's presence. My soul magnifies the Lord, starts Mary. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, it's true that a relationship with God is more than just Jesus and me, but it's not less than that either. Like Mary, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mary and Paul intimately speak about God because they also speak intimately with God. You know, God is not some abstract idea or unknowable entity. Of course, God being God, there's so much we can't know about him. And yet, Scripture is unashamed to say God, in his love, reveals himself to us in his Son. He wants us to be known by him and to know him. And so Mary, she's known by God and she knows God. And this helps her make sense of what's happening to her. Second, we see that Mary really knows the story of God. You know, Mary's song arises out of this story. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So her intimacy with God is personal, but her faith is not. It's, it's woven into this story of her people. It's woven into the story of what God has been doing in the world through Israel in the lives of her forefather Abraham, to the haphazard people of God, to the prayers she prays in her community every day. Her song is just filled with the story of God and it echoes scripture again and again. It's actually shocking how saturated this song is in, in scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Mary sings, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit has found gladness in God my Savior. And this finds harmony in Psalm 35, 9. Then my soul will find gladness in the Lord. It will take pleasure in his salvation. And in 1 Samuel 2, uh, second chapter, verses 1 through 2, uh, part of Hannah's song. My heart is strengthened in the Lord. My horn is exalted in my God. I delight in your salvation. In Habakkuk 3.18, I shall find gladness in the Lord. I shall rejoice in God my Savior. Mary sings, because God has regarded the low estate of his handmaid. 
And this alludes to Genesis chapter 29, verse 32, because the Lord has regarded my low estate. In Ezra 9, verse 45, God heard your handmaid and regarded my low estate and considered my distress and gave me a song. You see, I could go line by line through Mary's song and show you so many scriptures. And if you have a Bible with, with references, you should track them down. It's incredible. What we don't want to miss is that Mary's imagination was saturated with the Hebrew scriptures. And so Mary lives richly within the story of God, and that helps her make sense of her pregnancy. Finally, she has clarity about God's character. Mary is not confused about who God is. He's mighty and he's holy and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so in her song, God's portrayed as this mighty warrior who's also a merciful king. And Mary knows that God doesn't hold the same priorities as his people. He, he brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but sends the rich away empty. And as Preston put it in an article on our blog, Mary is strong when she faces a future that doesn't fit with the ways of her world because she knows she serves a God whose way doesn't fit with the ways of the world either. So Mary is known by God and she knows God. She knows her place within the living history of the story of God and she has clarity about God's character. And this is how she makes sense of her miraculous pregnancy. So when we want to split hairs about whether this could happen or not, or if it actually happened, what we're actually doing is divorcing the event from the story. Because from Mary's vantage point, although improbable, although rare and out of the ordinary, this is completely possible within the story of God. So the question is not whether this happened or not. It's whether this God is the true God of the universe. Whether this story is in fact the true story of the world. Because if this is who God is and this is his story, then of course the impossible is possible with him. But if he's not God, who cares about this virgin birth? Finally, I want to consider how we can sing with Mary. How can we sing with Mary? So Mary's breadth of understanding about God, her comprehension of God's story, it's remarkable. But I don't think that Mary sat down with her Torah and composed this poem. It's not like she was able to flip through and choose the verses and then create her own version. That just wouldn't have been an option for her. Her local synagogue might have had some scrolls and, and she may have had access to them, but probably not because as a woman, she wouldn't have been allowed. Instead, what we have to assume is that Mary faithfully treasured the public reading of scripture in her heart and every single lesson at the synagogue shaped her imagination. There's this practice noted about Mary in the gospel. Luke writes in chapter 2, verse 19, Mary treasured these things in her heart. And personally, I think Luke notes this because he probably observed that this seemed to be a pattern of Mary's long before she became the mother of God. That she had a habit of treasuring the things of God in her heart. And now it's hard to say whether the original song Mary sang in this moment with Elizabeth is, 
exactly what we have here. Now, I suspect that she probably clarified and strengthened the poem over the years and that Luke may have added his own editorial touch too. But even so, what we see in the song is how deeply Mary inhabited the scriptures and embodied the story of God. Her life was woven within scripture. It's the lens by which she makes sense of everything. As part of my doctoral research, I put together a sample of joyful Christians in Vancouver. So I sought to have a diverse sample in age and ethnicity and denomination, you name it. And then I spent time interviewing these people. But to get a sample of joyful Christians, first I had leaders refer uh, joyful people to an online survey and they took a, an assessment and then self-assessed as people are joyful. And I can tell you after spending two hours roughly which each, with each of these participants, they were deeply joyful people and not in this like fake happy-go-lucky way, but like real honest joy that knows the grit and difficulties of life. And there's so many things I want to tell you about what I learned from this group of people. But there's one thing I really want to highlight that was across the board present in each of their lives. It was narrative skill. Narrative skill. They were able to seamlessly talk about their lives and how they intersect with the story of God. They understood the major themes of God's story, what God's doing in the world, and how their lives were caught up in that story. So if I asked them about an event in their life, over and over again, they would interpret or reinterpret something that happened in light of God's story. And they did so humbly. They didn't say, oh, I'm hearing a voice from the clouds telling me that this is so. But they would take these themes from scripture. They would take their understanding of God's story and his character. And then they would reinterpret their lives in light of this story. They had narrative skill. But here's the thing. I don't think a single person in my sample was taught how to do this. I think it's something caught rather than taught. I think it's something you learn over time as you uh, dig deeply into the story of God. And I think this is true of Mary as well. Her narrative skill was caught, not taught. It developed over time as she committed herself to God and his story. And so I have a question for us. Do you have narrative skill? Do you have narrative skill? Are you fluent in the story of God? Do you know its major themes? Are you able to narrate your life within the story of God? Because that is how we sing with Mary. A narrative skill like language developed between any lover, it comes from meaningful time together. No meaningful time. Like where one's heart is open and hungry and expect, expectant. This is what fosters intimacy and the language to express it. And, and this is true of learning how to speak of God in our lives also. And this is why we're really encouraging you through our series in the Gospel of Luke to have a journal and a pen and a Bible and to handwrite the gospel for yourself so that you can read it attentively and learn it in detail and inwardly digest the gospel. But more importantly, I want to ask you, are you carving out time to be with God, to know his story, to discover the themes in scripture? 
are you carving out that time? And don't let that question induce guilt or shame. All I want to say is, if you want to develop narrative skill, if you want to develop the imagination that will help you make sense of how your life fits into God's story, how our community fits into God's story, how the events in the world fits into God's story, you must come to know God's story. And you must also come to be known by God in deeper and deeper ways. And that only comes through intentional solitude with God. And so if you're not sure how to do that or you'd like some resources that could help you do that better, that's our passion. That's what we're all about. We would love to help you. We want to help you discover the goodness of God with us or rediscover the goodness of God with us. We need narrative skill. We need to know the story of God and we're here to help you. Finally, the Magnificat definitively shows us that Christianity is not the opiate of the masses. Marx was convinced that when people seek comfort in religion, that religion uh, suppresses uh, emancipation politics. And, and so it, it placates the masses. It prevents them from revolting against those in power. And to be fair, this observation is sometimes true of Christianity. And sadly, there's times when Christianity is domesticated like a tame house pet of the political powers at large. But that's not its heartbeat, and that's not its destiny. Instead, the Magnificat casts the revolutionary vision of the gospel. You know, if we find our place in the story of God, if we discover how to sing with Mary, we sing a different tune, and it goes like this. No, it goes this way. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty. This is a major theme not an incidental theme in the story of God. This is a major theme, a central theme even in the gospel. Luke highlights this again and again and again as we journey through the story of the gospel. But we have to be careful on this point. God's not just reversing the social order so that the rich are now on the bottom rung and the poor are on the top rung. Although God is for the poor, he's not against the rich. He's offering redemption to both. And the outcome of the political vision of the gospel isn't socialism or communism or advocating for democracy or a republic. It's not left or right or center. Michael Agapito puts it so succinctly. Biblical Christianity will seem centrist at times because it will critique the ideologies of both the left and the right. But it's not politically centrist. It's politically transcendent. It's a category by itself. It's the ethics of a kingdom, not of this world. You see, we can say the first 
miraculous birth was the birth of the universe, if we want, and that Jesus was the second miraculous birth. And in his birth, God is ushering in a new universe, a new creation, a new way of being that aligns with his vision for what human well-being and flourishing looks like. Is this a transcendent reality? Absolutely. But it is also a reality being known uh, and made flesh here and now. And so if we're going to sing with Mary, it means singing this tune. The way things are are not the way things are meant to be. That's what Mary's singing in this song. The way things are are not the way things are meant to be. The state of our climate on earth is not the way things are meant to be. What we've done to the environment is not the way things are meant to be. Gross oppression across the globe is not the way things are meant to be. Racial injustice is not the way things are meant to be. Corrupt politicians and rulers are not the way things are meant to be. And if we follow Jesus into his kingdom, we sing this tune. The poor are lifted up and the rich are brought down because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there we discover the power of God to remake this broken world. We're going to look at how this plays out practically over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. So I'm not going to get all that practical today. But for now, here's what we need to understand. When we sing with Mary, it means everything is up for reevaluation. What we think about wealth, what we think about the marginalized and the poor, who we think is important, how we view politics within this world, how we vote, how we spend our time, it is all up for renegotiation. Because when we know the story of God, when we're known by God, as we come to know God and his kingdom, it changes everything. You see, Mary knows what's happening within her, the, be- the baby being knit together by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the revolution of God. These little cells that are slowly taking human form will ultimately become something so much more. What's happening inside of Mary is the gospel of God. In Mary's song, God is the one bringing the revolution. It's not of human origin. God is the one who takes action in every verse. God is the one bringing his son into the world. God is the one who will set the world to rights. God is the one correcting the imbalance, the injustice, and the oppression. So it's not on our shoulders. It's on God's. And he's taken the initiative. He's come into the world and we're invited to find our place within his story. And when we do, as we seek the kingdom, we get to see it show up here and now. And it will change our political vision. It will change our creational vision. It will change our entire vision because we will learn to see as God himself sees. But first... In order to see this way, we must first sing with Mary. We can't just reason about the gospel. It needs to grip our hearts and engage that artistic part of human nature so that it expresses itself in praise. And so may we sing with Mary 
My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he is making all things new in his Son, Jesus Christ.